Hey, church, thank you for being with us once again today. We're going to be looking at Luke 15. As we're looking at Luke 15, what we're going to end up finding out is we're going to be finding out about the prodigal son. That's the name of the parable. But interesting enough, when you look at the name of this parable, do you guys recognize that those little titles that are above little paragraphs in your Bible are called pericopes? And those were actually invented later on. Those get, the, the writers did not put those there. Those were added just to give us a little bit of help so we knew what we were about to read. And with that being said, I don't really think that's a good title for this. The Prodigal Son. Really? I think it could have a different meaning. See, the word prodigal has two meanings. One being spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully and extravagant. Or having or giving something on a lavish scale. Both of those answers don't refer to the prodigal son. I really think they better describe the prodigal father. So today we're going to look at this prodigal father. But when I think about the story, I read a little biography I'd like to read to you. I was a rebel, a college dropout, a party boy, a carouser. I smoked, I drank hard liquor, I was a brawler, I was well known by all of the local police authorities and had more than one visit down to the jail. By my own admission, I was the classic example of the prodigal son. But today that same man stands respected and admired and perhaps famous because his name is Franklin Graham, the son of Billy Graham. And he gives the credit to God who used his parents to love him back into the faith, to love him back into fellowship of Christ. There is power when there is a loving, faithful father or mother willing to stand in the gap for their children. See, the prodigal son, the prodigal father, whatever you want to call it, is one of the most well-known stories in the world. Charles Dickens wrote, it is the finest short story ever written. But I will go ahead and tell you, I feel like there's a few things we've gotten wrong about this story. We've tried to make this story cute. We've tried to make it quaint. We've tried to make it to where it just makes us feel good. But I think we've missed some things about the story. See, first thing that I want for us to understand is it's all about the father. His name is mentioned 12 times in only 20 verses. And we recognize what prodigal means now, spending money or resources freely, recklessly, wastefully, and giving something on a lavish scale. And the word prodigal actually only appears one time in the scripture, and that's in reference to the son blowing all of the money. And so as we look at this story, what we're going to notice is it truly is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of Christ. But as Jesus is about to set this up, he's setting this up with two other parables. And just to challenge you guys today, I challenge you not to think about this from a Western perspective, from an American perspective, but rather from an Eastern concept, an Eastern perspective. They had a completely different understanding of this parable, the story that Jesus came up with because of the culture in which they live. Now, just to have things make sense for you, we look at the top of Luke 15, and what it says is that Jesus was talking to religious leaders. He was talking to sinners. He was talking to scribes. He was talking to tax collectors. And so he has this gambit of Jewish people 
all around him, all wanting to know what he thinks. And so he sets this story up by bringing up two others. The first, he brings up a hundred sheep and the shepherd that's willing to leave the 99 to go after the one. And then he transitions over to a woman who has 10 coins but can't find one. And then he goes into the story of the father who lost one son. Three stories. Look at the odds. At first, he starts off with the issue of 100 to 1, then 10 to 1. And then he moves down to the concept of father who had only two and loses one. He starts off talking about animals and livestock, transitioning to money, and then to his own flesh and blood. Let's look at Luke 15, verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So the younger son goes to the dad and says, Dad, I want my finances now. I don't want to wait for the inheritance. I want to break out on my own. Now, their culture, just like many cultures that are currently existing in other countries, the sons would stay underneath the father until the father died. I was in ministry, I was in a mission trip in India. And you go to India and you see houses that aren't wide, they're just really tall. Because as a son grows up, they'll just build another floor to the home. And the son will stay underneath the father's house all the way up until the father's death. The family unit never separated. See, that's what he's living in, but he's living under his father's rule. He wants to break out of that. He wants to have freedom. He wants to be able to do whatever he wants to do. He wants to go out and make a name for himself. And so he asks his father, or more so tells his father, to give him what he feels like is his. And then what we recognize is this. Ultimately, what the son is asking for is he's saying, without even realizing it, He's saying, Dad, I wish that you were dead. I wish that I could go ahead, go ahead and live as if you didn't exist. See, what he's trying to say is, I want your benefit. I want your blessings, but I don't want your relationship. Christians can so relate to this. See, I want your blessings. I want the benefit of calling you my heavenly father, but I don't want your conviction. I don't want your oversight. I don't want your lordship. That's what the younger son is saying. But see, every time that we look at sin, we can always realize that it starts with a selfish desire. The middle letter in sin is what? I. It is the sin of I. We get so selfish. We get so self-centered. We get so self-focused. And I don't think we realize who we're hurting. See, we love to comment about how the son basically breaks the father's heart. The son is basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead, but I don't think the son realized that's what he was saying. The son was so focused about him. The son was so focused about what he wanted and what he needed and what he needed to do that he was not even paying attention to how much hurt it was going to cause others. Guys, can I tell you, that's how hurt happens. Most of the time, I think Christians hurt Christians, not intentionally, but out of negligence, because we can become so self-centered, so self-focused, so self-absorbed, that we don't realize that our actions are hurting the people around us in bigger ways than what we could imagine. He's so selfish, he's so self-centered, he doesn't even know. But then what gets crazy here, 
What gets just totally intense when Jesus says this parable, I guarantee you there was a gasp in the audience when Jesus says, and the father divided his property between them. That would have been mind-blowing because according to the Levitical law, that father would have every right to execute that son. He would have every right to execute his rebellious child, but he doesn't. He gives the son what he wants. But in Jewish culture, there would have been something that would have happened in this process. There would have been something that would have occurred, and that's called the kazaza. See, I was reading this week, and one of the things I was reading was about the way that they would go about something like this. Now remember, this is just a parable. This is just Jesus giving up a story that's not necessarily true. So I don't want to try to pull things out of it that's not there. But Jewish culture would say that if a son wanted to be separated from his father and to receive that inheritance, what would happen is the whole community would walk out with the family. And they would be carrying a large clay pot. And they'd be holding this clay pot. And when the sun stepped outside of city limits, they would drop this pot. And the clay would go everywhere. And what this would serve as is as a line to basically say, never cross this line again. You are dead to us. Never come back. It was the line in the sand. That could have happened. That would have happened in the Jewish minds. And so you have all of this stuff that goes on. And the first point I want for you guys to understand is this today. Whenever you are away from God, whenever there's a separation from you and God, it's always your fault. It's always your fault. See, we live in a culture, in a society where we never want to take the blame. We always want to blame others. We always want to blame things that have even happened in our past as to why we do things now to justify our actions. Y'all, can I just tell you, one of the things that drives me crazy is when we blame our childhood for our present mistakes. Can I go ahead and tell you this? Jesus forgave you of everything you did when you accepted him as Lord and Savior. You need to forgive those who hurt you before and after you became a Christian as well. But no one is responsible for your actions but you. Nobody can make you do anything but you. And every single time that there is distance between you and Jesus, I guarantee you that he didn't do it. Jesus is not guilty. He did not walk away from you. You caused the separation. See, we live in a world of relationships with fallen people. We all are imperfect. And so what we love to do is whenever there's a problem in a relationship, the best way to reconcile that relationship is for both of you to admit that you made some mistakes, right? For both of you to admit that you hurt each other, for both of you to admit and compromise and share that blame. But when there's a problem in your relationship with Jesus, there's no compromise there. There is no way for you to justify what you did to him based upon his actions, correct? Listen, we have to understand that any and every time there's separation between us and our heavenly father, it is our fault. But I love what James 4, 8 says. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Verse 13, not many days later, the young son gathered all he had 
and took a journey into a far country. And he squandered his property in reckless living. So as soon as he got the stuff, he sold it off so he could go and live in a far off country. Now, where was he probably living? He's probably living with the Gentiles. He was probably living with those that were not considered followers of the Lord. Verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. Now things are getting rough at this point. That leads us to point two. Whenever you are away from God, you will find failure. Whenever you are not with the Lord is when you find failure. So whenever you're separated from God, it's your fault. And when you are separated from God, you will absolutely find failure in many aspects of your life. See, he was living the high life. He was having a great time. He was getting and doing anything that he wanted. But things came crashing down. See, one thing I think the church forgets to do, and I don't think we do very well, I think that often we try to sell sin as something that's not fun, something that's not enjoyable. Y'all, if sin isn't fun for you, you're doing it wrong, okay? You just are. Because sin is a great time for a moment. Sin is a blast for a moment. But the pleasure and the satisfaction is fleeting. See, one of the best illustrations I love to describe sin is the devil is a master fisherman. And he figures out the perfect bait for you. And you are going to bite a hold of that bait and you are going to love that bait. It is going to bring you so much pleasure until he sets the hook. And you realize that you were stuck in a position that you were not expecting. Sin is always more than you bargain for. And often we get too caught up in the pleasure before we recognize that there's a consequence to that Sin. Sin is enjoyable. Sin is fun. But sin always comes with a hook. It always ends with death. It always ends with an issue. And I think as a church, we need to acknowledge that there is pleasure in sin, but there is no reward for that pleasure. That pleasure ultimately leads to our destruction. In Hebrews 11.25, it says that passing pleasures of sin exist. I read today that that boy, referring to the prodigal son, went up like a rocket, and he came down like a rock. See, I was reading a couple of stats today, a couple of quotes. One of the quotes I read by his famous actress named Angelina Jolie. She says, she remembered one of the most upsetting times in her life was after she had finally achieved success, financial stability, and she was in love. And her quote, I have everything they say you are supposed to have to be happy. I have everything you're supposed to have to be happy, but I'm really not happy. Another person by the name of Eminem, not the candy, a person, said, you have to be careful what you wish for. I always wished for this, but it has become more of a nightmare than a dream. Maybe that's where some of you are this morning. You're in a far country You thought that it would be a great trip. You thought it would be a great place to be, but your sin has taken you so much further than you ever realized. Let's jump to verse 16. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But then he came to himself. So 
He's living in the foreign land. He's now working for a Hebrew. When Jesus says this, they would are working for a Gentile. When they say this, they would have been appalled. The Jews would have been absolutely appalled that a Jew would be working for a Gentile and then feeding the pigs that were the unclean animals they weren't even supposed to touch. Absolutely appalling. What Jesus is trying to do is paint a picture of somebody in the absolute worst pit, worst predicament that they could find themselves in. And for the Jewish people, this is it. And then he ends up coming to himself, verse 17, but when he came to himself. Now, what does that mean? When he finally woke up, when he finally came to his senses? But I don't believe this means repentance. I don't believe this is the moment that he repented. See, the word for repentance is not the word being used in that part of the text. I think he recognized he needed the Father But his motive for going back to the father is what? He's hungry. Look at the rest of 17. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven. And before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as your hired servant. Now, we think that that's a statement of humility, but it's really not because there were three types of servants that we find in that point of their culture. One was a bondservant. See, the apostle Paul calls himself a bondservant of Christ. Many of the apostles would refer to them as a bondservant, but a bondservant was somebody that would be basically adopted into the family. You would live in the home if you were a bondservant, and you would be treated as a son to the master. And then the next servant you would have would be the lower class servant who did not live in the house, but was like the servant to the bond servant. And then you had the hired servant. Now the hired servant is what the prodigal is referring to himself as. Hey, I want to be a hired servant, but that's not the lowest of the low. That's a completely different agreement. To be a hired servant meant that you did not live in the home, that you did not be, you were not considered part of the family, You did not have the same responsibilities. You were nothing more than a hired hand. You were a contract laborer that got paid a great wage. But as soon as your hours were done for the day, you were free to go do and live your life however you pleased. And that is what the son is asking to do. That's what the son is asking to be. I don't think humility has happened yet. I still think, I still think that in this point of the text, The son is just trying to figure out how to make it work for him. He's in a bad way. Can he just go in and get some money from his dad so he can live his life how he wants? Verse 20, he arose and came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him. See, this is big. When he says this, the word that would have caught everybody off guard was what? Ran. See, men did not run. The equivalent of a man running back then is today is if all of a sudden a grown man started crawling through the supermarket. It would look weird. It would look awkward. It would look embarrassing. And that's how they felt about a man running. Remember, if you were to run back in the day, these guys would wear head-to-toe, floor-length gowns, robes. They would have to pull them up, showing the most shameful part of their bodies, which at that point was their knees and they would be sprinting through a field but the dad takes off running now why does the dad take off running well one obvious 
conclusion would be he was so excited to see his son returning home. But there's another part to this. See, back in the day, when you think of the the son walking up to the father, you think of this beautiful big estate where there's one house with fields all around it that they work. But that's not how it was back then. See, most Jewish culture, most Jewish houses, they all lived together. They were very close to one another. It was like a little city. But then they would all walk out of the city, out of the little metropolis that they lived in to their fields every day. So they would live in a community, but work in the fields outside of town. And so chances were that the young man is walking towards a crowd of people. There were other people around. And the father is not just going to greet him, but the father is running to what? Protect him. The father is running to his son to keep anybody from saying anything to his son that would cause his son to turn around and go away. See, everybody knew that that son had left. See, there were no secrets in Jewish culture. There were no secrets in a Jewish community. Everybody would have found out what that son had done. They all would have been appalled. And the moment he comes walking back in, he would have heard it, wouldn't he? People would have started to run their mouths. People would have started to make fun of him, to blame him, to shame him. And what does the dad do? The dad runs over there and stops all of it before anybody can. He puts his arm around his son. Question, can we be like the father or are we like the community? See, can we be like the Father when people come back in a relationship with Christ, when people go from lost to found, or when people that once had a relationship with the Lord that are what we call backslidden come back into restoration, can we be like the Father or do we end up being like the community? Because I feel like all too often people don't come back to church after they've fallen away because they're so embarrassed and they're so ashamed and they're so nervous that somebody is going to make them feel horrible for what they did. See, here's the hard, hard thing about being a Christian in a community. Christ forgives us of our sin. And God's word actually says that he separates it from us. The problem is that other Christians don't. And I think that's a problem. I think that we should be quick to forgive those. But here's the thing. It's even when people aren't even wronging us, when people made mistakes, we never separate them from their mistakes. And I hate that. I hate that about religious people. Jesus is talking to Pharisees and scribes who thought like that and talked like that. But the father runs out to protect him. I pray we can be like the father. But not only does that happen, but then verse 20, he arose, came to his father while he's still a long way off. His father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And then verse 21, and the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But (laughs) the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead. And is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This son comes up with this speech. He's going to say to try to get back in his, his dad's good graces. So he can make a wage. And he can get fed. And live a little bit better life than what he was living. But then what does his dad do? I truly think this is the moment where this young man's heart would be softened. I think this was the moment. 
Because I think he came back for the wrong reasons. But I think when he saw his father's love for him, his heart softened to now be one with his father and to be considered a son again because of the love of the father. The father's love is transformative in the heart and life of the unbeliever and the believer alike. God's love is transformative and we are called to be stewards of that love, to dish that out to others. What are we doing with that love? Are we acting like the father? Are we acting like the community? See what the father does. The father gives him three gifts. He gives him a ring, he gives him sandals, and he gives him a robe. See that robe, he says, bring out the best robe. Who did that robe belong to if it was the best robe? It was the father's robe. Give him my very best. Then he says, give him a ring. What was that, a signet ring? It means that he was reinstated back into authority. And then he says, give him sandals. See, no servant would wear sandals. Family wore sandals. Only sons wore sandals. He fully instates him. He reinstates him back to the place in which he once was. And I believe the love of the father is what softened the son's heart. He says, kill the fattened calf and let's celebrate. Such a powerful, powerful thing we see in scripture. But then we see this. I don't have a lot of time, but bear with me. In verse 25, the older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. See, this son was so frustrated. He was so aggravated because he had been doing all of the right things, all of the good things. But there was some things that that son had done wrong too. See, when we look at the story of the brother, at the very beginning of the story, it says that the father divided the property between them. What does that mean? That means that the brother was given in his inheritance too. The brother could have refused it and allowed the father to keep it, but it doesn't seem like that's what happened. The brother keeps his portion of the inheritance. The older brother would have been given two-thirds. The younger brother would have given one-third. And this older brother keeps the inheritance. And then what do we see here? He is silent throughout this entire thing. The brother leads. The brother squanders his wealth. And he doesn't say a word. If you're the older brother, you're supposed to be the right hand of your father. You're supposed to be willing to do anything you can do to please your father, to assist your father. And this guy sits there silent. How often as Christians do we watch other believers fall away and we do nothing? How often do we watch other believers spiral down into sin and destruction and we don't say a word? Honestly, if we're anyone in the story, we're the older brother. Because my goodness, God called us for more than that. Y'all, what I find intriguing is there's this moment where the older brother says, you're giving it to him and he squandered, squandered all your money. And he proceeds to tell him on how the younger brother squandered the money. You know what that means to me? Either A, he's gossiping, or B, he went and saw him. He went and looked, maybe he went and peered in. Regardless, the older brother's trying to be a part of the problem, not a part of the solution. Where are we in this? 
Are we going to stand in the gap and be used as tools of the Savior as we see our brothers and sisters struggling, falling into sin, biting onto the bait? Guys, here's my hope. My hope is that we can be the good brother and we can steward the Father's love and love people into repentance and a restoration, into reconciliation with our Father. But then also we can't help but just see the need and the importance for evangelism. See, we only desire grace when it applies to us. We're only grateful for grace when it applies to us. But here's the thing. Everyone you come in contact with needs grace and you have been given it abundantly. Steward it well. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for today. God, we thank you that we have the opportunity to get in your word. God, I pray as we look at this son, we look at the prodigal father, the father who is willing to pour out lavishly. God, I pray that we will be a good son, a good older brother for you. And in turn, love our younger brothers well. Put arms around them. Love them back in a reconciliation with you, God. I pray we will make much of you as we do everything we can to love and serve others, Lord. God, I pray that we recognize that grace wasn't just given for us, but grace was given so that we could give it to others as well. That we could not hold on to grudges, but rather, God, show your mercy and love to others. We love you. In your name we pray, amen.